Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Melissa Colston and Michael Cunningham. Hello. Hey. So it's August, and many people are heading back to school. So we thought we would talk this month about books related to back to school in some way. <laughs> yeah, we've approached it a, a little differently than each other, but we've got lots of good books to talk about today. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. So I approached this month's theme by thinking about books that I've read that I've learned a lot from or maybe should have read in high school or college. And one of the books that fits the bill is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen by Jose Antonio Vargas. Vargas is a journalist who was born in the Philippines and was put on a plane by his mother when he was 12 to fly to California and join his grandparents who had emigrated years earlier. When he was 16, Vargas learned that the documents he arrived in America with were in fact falsified and that he was living in America illegally. The book is a combination of a memoir and journalistic nonfiction, weaving together Vargas's story as an undocumented immigrant with the larger story of immigration in America, both historical and recent. Published in 2018, the information Vargas presents about illegal immigration and undocumented people provides some helpful background and context for the battles that are being waged at the border today in Washington, D.C. and in state and city governments. I try to stay relatively well informed when it comes to politics, but I learned a ton from this book, both the, about the facts of how America's immigration system works and about how migrants, documented and undocumented, live their lives within that system. I initially read the book to learn more, but in the end, I also had a lot of my preconceived notions challenged, and I was forced to contemplate questions I'd never even thought to ask. Vargas's journalistic style keeps the story moving and engaging, and I couldn't put it down. As for what to pair with Dear America, Vargas talks about mentioning Filipino adobo to his classmates as an example of how he didn't really know it was appropriate to talk about when he first arrived. The dish, apparently, of marinated stewed meat is very popular in the Philippines, and the marinade of vinegar and soy sauce was originally used as a preservative. When the Spanish colonized the Philippines, the dish got its name. You can find a recipe for chicken adobo on Panlasang Pinoy's website, and we'll link to it on our blog. that I chose were mainly set in schools, and the first one is a classic, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody by Muriel Spark. This character-driven novel takes place in 1930s Edinburgh, Scotland, where Miss Jean Brody is a teacher, quote, in her prime, as she frequently likes to point out, at the Marsha Blaine School for Girls. There, she nurtures the Brody set, six students that she considers the creme de la creme, Eunice, Jenny, Mary, Monica, Rose, and Sandy. 
Miss Brody is an outsider at the school, in part because she strays from its curriculum, teaching the girls about, among other things, quote, the Buckmanites and Mussolini, the Italian Renaissance painters, the advantages to the skin of cleansing cream and witch hazel over honest soap and water, and the word menarch, unquote. Her fascist politics and unconventional personal life, including affairs with the school's two male teachers, cement her position on the school's fringes. A third-person narrator relates the point of view of the girls, one of whom ultimately betrays Miss Brody. Initially, the girls' overly romantic yet naive worldviews, particularly about sex, are quite funny, especially as read by Miriam Margulies in the audiobook version. In some ways, the girls reminded me of Anne Shirley and Diana Barry in Anne of Green Gables. However, Spark often flashes forward to their adult lives, and her themes of betrayal and society's expectations of women mean that the prime of Miss Jean Brody is definitely not for children. I first read the book several years ago before a trip to Scotland and recently listened to the audiobook version. Though I found the book's chronology a bit challenging to follow on audio, fans of Scottish accents will appreciate hearing the characters' brogues. If you're looking to squeeze in a, qui a witty, quick, yet psychologically dense read or listen before school starts, try The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. Other than tea, Spark mentions food and drink infrequently. The one exception is when she discusses Miss Brody's obsession with feeding her lover, the school's music teacher, Mr. Lowther. Quote, Outside on the dining room table stood large bowls of fruit with boxes of dates piled on top of them, as if this were Christmas and the kitchen that of a holiday hotel, Spark writes. Won't all this give Mr. Lowther a stoppage, Sandy said to Jenny. Not if he eats his greens, said Jenny. According to the website mustseescotland.com, the cold hearty kale has long been a staple in Scottish kitchens. One of my favorite kale recipes is warm salad of roasted kale, coconut, and tomatoes from Anna Jones's book, A Modern Way to Eat. As Jones says, Quote, roasted kale is a revelation, unquote, and this meal-sized salad combines crispy, crispy kale with roasted tomatoes and a delicious salty, sweet miso and tahini dressing that will have you eating your greens with gusto. That sounds amazing, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to have to go home and make some. Yeah, it's a really... I don't know, miso and tahini and just about anything will make... It tastes good, I've discovered. <laughs> yeah, those are some of my favorite flavors to use in salads, especially mm -hmm. with kale. It is kind of a production because they're, cause you're roasting the kale. and So I wouldn't make a lot of other things with it, maybe. Just go for the meal-sized salad. Yeah, just salad. go for the meal-sized salad. <laughs> All right, good to know. For my picks this month, I did very much uh, something similar to what Carrie did. I chose two books that were uh, that took place in schools. So my first recommendation is *The Bone Weaver's Orchard* by Sarah Reed. 
This Gothic horror tale begins in 1926 when young Charlie Winslow is shipped to the Old Cross School for Boys in Yorkshire, England, a former abbey, by his father who's serving in Cairo after his mother falls ill and dies. Charlie is a stoic and lonely boy whose best friends are his insects that he collects. Once school starts, he finally makes a friend, Ethan Bowles. One night, his friend disappears after, get, after getting injured in a fight. Everyone says he's run back home, but Charlie doesn't quite believe that. As he digs deeper to find out what happened to his friend, with the help of the gardener, Sam Forrester, and the school's matron, Grace, he finds that his friend isn't the first one to disappear. It leads him to the ruined and shuttered East Wing's hidden passages, and to the shocking and dark history of the Abbey's past that may still stock the halls of the school. This book is, is a shorter yet really well-paced and powerful gothic novel that has some impressive horror elements. The character development was right on point, especially of Charlie and his friend-slash-partner Sam the Gardener. I found myself really caring for them, which became stressful at times. Sarah Reed excelled at creating that gothic atmosphere and setting, really taking you to the old Abbey and its creepy passages, which is not something that's easily done, especially considering this is her first novel. Also, she does not shy away from the horror in the book, which some of it can be graphic, but there's nothing that I found to be gratuitous or excessive. While reading this, I was reminded a lot of Henry James's Turn of the Screw, as well as Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. But if you're more into movies, this recalled Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone and J.A. Bayona's The Orphanage. Uh... Throughout the novel, uh, Sam and Charlie would meet in the school's orchard as Sam tended to the trees picking apples. During these meetings, they would usually enjoy freshly picked apples as they tried to solve the mysterious disappearances. Since it's quite hot out and not quite yet apple season, I would pair this with a chilled Cider Guy semi-dry cider from the Rheingeist Brewery out of Cincinnati. It's a effervescent cider with a nice apple aroma and a pleasant tartness at the finish. Sounds really delightful. Mm -hmm. I like the description of the book. I mean, that sounds like kind of this idyllic English setting, but the have the horror thrown in. Yeah, it's really gothic. It, it, like I kept coming back to like the you know turn the screw, like I said, and um, yeah, the character development was really on point. Mm -hmm. But if you like cider, cider geist out of Rheingeist Brewery there is excellent. I don't think I've met anything I don't like out of Rheingeist. Yeah. They just make good beverages. They do. Mm -hmm. So my next pair of books are definitely the two that I wish I'd been able to read while I was in school. Um, it, I've ended up deciding to read both of them and it ended up feeling like as an assignment that I set to myself and I kind of wished I'd had a class to be able to to work through them together with. Um, but the books are The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin and The Fire This Time, edited by Jessamyn Ward. I'd been meaning to read both of them since Ward's book came out in 2016, but I'm almost glad that I waited until now to read them. Baldwin's writing had sort of a resurgence in the popular discussion after the election of Barack Obama, and again since the election of Donald Trump. I'm no expert on Baldwin. This is the first book that I've read by him. Um, but to understand why his commentary has become so important, I found this passage from a Guardian article helpful. 
quote, unlike his peers who took a hardline position, such as Malcolm X's by any means necessary stance and the Black Panther's militancy and offered solutions, Phillips argues, Baldwin's job was to bear witness. He read between the lines and attempted to make sense of the world. He explores the ambiguities and the ironies of the situation and helps you to see the problems more personally and clearly, and then leads it up to you to draw the conclusions, unquote. The fire next time consists of two letters, the first one to his nephew on the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of emancipation, and then the second letter is more about his exploration of religion through Christianity and Islam, um, and sort of how he comes out on the other side of that. Uh, the Fire This Time, edited by Ward, was collected and published in the wake of the not guilty verdict in George Zimmerman's trial for the murder of Trayvon Martin. Ward says in her introduction that she wanted to put together a, quote, book that would gather new voices in one place, in a lasting physical form, and provide a forum for those writers to dissent, to call account, to witness, to reckon, unquote. Reading the two books as a pair, I found that while Baldwin was speaking to a very specific time in America when it was published in the early 1960s, his imaginings about how America could move past its racist and oppressive history are even more impactful when reflecting on them nearly 60 years later. I sort of set myself these books as my summer reading assignment, and I'm really glad I did. All three of the books that I've talked about today have stuck with me and are helping me parse what's going on in our country from immigration and the border to the back-to-back mass shootings that happened this past weekend. It's not easy stuff, but I found the exercise and the purpose behind it to be really helpful in the end. So Baldwin lived in France for most of the later years of his life. So as for what to pair with these two slim but weighty books, I think a glass or two of a solidly bold French red wine is perfect for weighing the words of great writers past and present. To help you get a better understanding of French wines, the book Windows on the World Complete Wine Course by Kevin's Rally is just the ticket. The book does a great job of breaking down the confusing system of wine classification and different terms so you can find just what you're looking for the next time you're contemplating a bottle. I also haven't read much Baldwin other than short stories. I guess I should put that on my TBR list for, we were talking about doing that for next time. Yeah. How about, how about you, Michael? Yeah, that, that book um, has been on my TBR for a while now. <laughs> um, have you read uh, Between the World and Me by Tanya No, I haven't. And that was part of why I wanted to finally tackle Baldwin was because um, it, and Jessamine Ward talks about it in her introduction that like, his impact on today's writers is so it's so present and like the writers that we have today wouldn't be who they are without him Um, like his work was just that important at the time and it keeps coming back as a way to examine what's going on in America Um, and it felt like if I'm going to read the fire this time I needed to have that grounding in what they were responding to um, so I felt like I couldn't do one without the other. Um, and it was really helpful in a way. I don't, that's not the best word. It was 
informative? It was informative. They informed each other. Like, it just, I would really recommend if you're going to read one, read the other. But, you know, he has a bunch of other books that are just as important, if not more so, to the this sort of, this area of literature. Yeah. And I look forward to reading more by him. The, the sentence structure that he uses is, like, it has a lot of voice, but there were times where I'd read an entire paragraph and have to go back and reread it like two or three times just because of the way that he organizes his points and like there are really long sentences that I had to f sit with for a minute and be like what is he actually saying here mm -hmm. um, but it was really worth the effort even if it did feel a little bit like homework <laughs> <laughs> Citrus County by John Brandon is another book about school outsiders, this time in Citrus County, Florida, a place I happen to know well. Like most of Florida, this Gulf Coast County can be just as weird as he describes. I think it's more beautiful, though. But then, the characters in Citrus County aren't in the mental space where they can see that beauty. Instead, the sunrises are, quote, the color of lima beans, unquote, and pelicans fly with their, quote, crusty pink eyes narrowed, unquote. It's hard to talk about this book's plot without giving anything away, so let me just say that I found the story itself to be incredibly gripping. I read it in just a couple of days because I couldn't put it down, and even skipped to the end because I felt so anxious about the characters. At the same time, the writing was so good, spare and image-driven, both funny and terrifying, that I wanted to savor the book and its many fine sentences. There are three main characters in Citrus County. Shelby, a middle school girl who moves to the county with her father and little sister, Kaylee, shortly after, their, after her mother dies. Toby, a troubled boy who lives with his abusive uncle and, early on in the book, kidnaps Kaylee and their teacher, Mr. Hibma. Like Shelby and Toby, Mr. Hibma doesn't fit in with the other teachers or kids at school. He thinks he needs to perform a radical act, like murder a colleague, to show his difference. He is an uneasy mentor to Shelby and Toby, but he is all they have. The author treats all these flawed characters with empathy, and even though some of them not only think about but commit terrible acts, I still wanted them to figure it out, to learn how to do the right thing. They all seem to want to live better lives, even though they're not sure how to do it. Citrus County is definitely not for everyone and could be triggering for some, but I recommend it for fans of Harry Cruz, Flannery O'Connor, or other Southern Gothic writers. The characters in Citrus County mostly eat fish sticks and frozen burritos, and you probably won't feel hungry for that or anything else while reading it. But you might need a drink afterwards. We've kind of <laughs> gone for the drinks this episode. <laughs> Books and bites. Back to school indeed. <laughs> Even Citrus County, Florida has craft breweries, though they're, they're still too bougie for these characters. <laughs> still, you'll need something with bite to match this book's hard-boiled feel. 
Since you can't find Citrus County beers in Central Kentucky yet, I recommend trying West Six Limited Run Valencia Berliner Weiss, a sour ale with a hint of citrus. And there's our second second product plug. For <laughs> <laughs> that one's pretty good. I like that one. I've come across this novel before when I built a Southern Gothic display out there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so I definitely have that on my TBR as well. Yeah, um, actually, I mean, you, you know, since you're very into the suspense, it definitely has. I, it was almost unbearable suspense for me. <laughs> I don't normally <laughs> like books with that much suspense. Um, and I actually couldn't stand it and actually went to the end to see the, see how things were going to turn out before I, before I went back and could kind of breathe and <laughs> read the rest of the book. Those are hard sometimes where you're... It just makes me so anxious. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, Jessamyn Ward's book, um, Sing Unburied Sing, I was so anxious in that book. And it's not actually all that suspenseful. Yeah. But, like... Mm, yeah, that was a, a tough time. one, too. Mm, I have a hard time with that. you got to know that everybody's going to be okay or, right. like, or not. And I don't know right. how you do it. I love, <laughs> it. I love that ratcheting of the suspense. Uh-huh. It just makes me fly through it. Uh-huh. But some people, yeah, they just can't take it, and they'll have to stop or come back to it later. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's good we have we have a mix. Yeah. Yep. My second recommendation is My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. Abby and Gretchen have been friends since Abby's fourth grade birthday party at the roller skating rink where Gretchen was the only person to show up. Now it's 1988 and their sophomore year at Albemarle Academy in Charleston, South Carolina. After Labor Day weekend, swimming and boating at their friend's Margaret's house ends in disaster, Abby starts to notice that Gretchen is acting strange. She doesn't shower, she always, she's always exhausted, and she wears the same clothes every day. Then there's the inexplicable incidents that happen whenever Gretchen is around. Then all of a sudden, she comes to school with a new hairstyle, new clothes, and a completely different attitude, and completely cuts Abby out of her life. Abby knows that something bad happened in those woods, and starts digging for answers, and tries to find help. Can Abby save Gretchen and their friendship in time from the clutches of a possible demon? Oh, no. (laughs) So, reading this book was, was an experience. The book is actually packaged as like as Gretchen's yearbook. So when you open the the front cover and you go back to the back cover, there's book signings from students and characters from in the book. Mm-hmm. And there's even ads from like local businesses, fictional <laughs> ads, which is really cool. Um, there's even a Spotify playlist with all the songs from the book that's actually um, that's you can find by looking at the publisher Quirk Books. And each chapter has a name of an '80s song that fits pretty well these chapters like Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart <laughs> King of Pain by the Police and We Got to Beat by the Go-Go's and yeah, if you download the ebook from Overdrive there's a link you can just click to and take it to the list or you can just google it mm-hmm. um, it's also just chock full of 80's nostalgia and pop culture Abby has an E.T. themed birthday party there's mention <laughs> of swatches and Abby even has a part time job at TCBY um <laughs> The story nicely blends horror and humor into this this awesome coming-of-age tale. The heart of this book is about friendship and what would you do to keep that friendship going 
while navigating all those turbulent teen years. It does have a few horror scenes and one or two unsettling ones. The, the humor in the book does help take off the edge of the scarier scenes in the book. Um, it also has a nice twist on the whole exorcism um, trope that you see, which from what you typically read or see in the movies. Um, if you like the 80s nostalgia of Stranger Things or have enjoyed the books John Dies at the End by David Wong or the YA book The Merciless by Daniel Vega, you'd probably really enjoy this book. Um, I will say after reading this book, uh, if you have a childhood friend you haven't talked to in a while, you'll definitely be wanting to see what they're kind of up to now. <laughs> uh, so for my pairing, I chose Sloppy Joe's. Not much else says 80s school lunch like Sloppy Joe's. I found a great recipe from the Pioneer Woman, um, which you can just Google it or we'll have a link to it on our blog. Uh, I made this for lunch over the past weekend. It was really good, better than what I remember from school. Um, I added actually a little bit of Tabasco to give it a little uh, extra kick. Um, also, since Gretchen puts down an unholy amounts of Diet Coke throughout the novel, I'll pair this Sloppy Joe with an ice cold Diet Coke to actually complete the meal. Uh, I even tried it with a slice of lemon like Gretchen does, which was actually pretty good. <laughs> that, that does sound like a very 80s uh, lunch, although my 80s school lunches were more like the square pizza. <laughs> oh, I remember those. Oh yeah, we had square pizza too. It was the best. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> One more book that I recently read that has a unique perspective on school, and it's called Old in Art School by Nell Painter. It's a memoir about her experience of embarking on a second career as an artist. After retiring from her position teaching American history at Princeton University, Painter decided at the age of 64 to get a BFA and then an MFA in art. Her book describes the many obstacles she faced as an older African-American student trying to grow as an artist, including ageism, racism, and the demands of caring for elderly parents who lived across the country. In lively, if somewhat lengthy, prose, Painter explores important questions about the kind of art society values and what it means to be an artist with a capital A. Who gets to decide who is or isn't an artist? How do you silence the toxic voices telling you that you can't do something? And above all, how do you move forward with your work? The book includes images of Painter's work, and I enjoyed seeing the progression of her art. However, I didn't feel that I needed to read every detail about why and how she made each piece. But then, Painter also struggled to keep her MFA thesis under the word limit. Quote, the only problem I envisioned with writing it, she notes, would be stanching a flood of words, unquote. I think I would have enjoyed Olden Art School more had an editor stanched its flood of words. Still, I recommend it for anyone who is interested in art or art education, or for anyone looking for inspiration for their own creative endeavors. As Painter's career attests, you're never too old for art school. Pair old in art school with a student standby of a quick, cheap meal, ramen. Roy Choi suggests doctoring up instant ramen with an egg, butter, and American cheese. 
You probably don't need a recipe for that, but if so, you can find it in Choi's book, L.A. Sun, or at the link on our blog. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We record in the recording studio of the Jasmine County Public Library. You can find out more about the library and our recording studio on our website, justpublib.org. Our theme song is by Scott Whitten from his album, In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com. 